The following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new. The scripture reading for today is from Romans 8, 14 to 17. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with the Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Okay, go ahead. This is the word God for the people of God. Well, good morning, IBC. So glad you are here. If you have your Bible or you want to access it on the mobile app, let's go to Romans chapter 8. The passage that you just heard read, Romans chapter 8. Preaching this sermon in this service and the next one is all that stands between me and sabbatical. So I'm going to make it quick. Uh, (laughs) uh, Just kidding. You're in for a full sermon. Don't worry about it. Um, But I got to tell you, I'm so excited for what the Lord has in store for me, for my family during this time away, this time of sabbatical, but I'm gonna miss you guys. It is, uh, it is the joy and privilege of my life to get to be your pastor. And so I'm gonna miss you, but I am excited and would just ask that you would pray for me, pray for us, the Joneses, as we uh, take some time away. And as I mentioned last week, just my heart, my desire for this time of sabbatical is to deepen my discipleship to Jesus, that I would come back a stronger, better disciple and therefore a stronger and better pastor and leader. Now, I want us to pray together as we turn our attention to God's word this morning. Um, And in part, I want us to do that because I gotta tell you, this this passage that we're gonna talk about is really powerful, but it also touches on some very tender places in some of our stories. And so I think it would be appropriate before we turn our attention to scripture for us to pray that God would give us hearts that are open, uh, minds that are alert, uh, enabling us to hear this powerful, I think, transformative truth for our lives today. Would you join me as we pray? Father, as we turn our attention now to your word, powerful truth that has the ability to change us, which truth that touches on some tender places in some of our stories. And so we pray, God, that you would uh, allow us to hear what it is that you want to say today. God, that you would 
use this truth to bring healing, to bring comfort, to bring hope, to bring life. Lord, for those who have never trusted in Christ, that today might be the day that they would say, yes, I believe. And so God, use this time. Use me, God. I open myself up. Get me out of the way so that your truth, your word comes through and touches hearts and lives today. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's this idea that, that you've heard me say before if you've been around for very long. It's, a, it's an idea that I bring back every now and again, in part because it's just a really important idea that we need to grasp. And, and it really is an idea that shapes the way that I plan sermons, the way that I plan sermon series. And the idea is this. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing that you can think. Right? Some of you, you've heard me say that before. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing that you can think. This is sort of my paraphrase of an idea originally communicated by A.W. Tozer. And what Tozer was getting at is the reason it's so important what we think about when we think about God, because that changes who we are. It, it shapes the, 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 the life that we live. It shapes who we are becoming. That what we think about when we think about God shapes the way in which we view and treat other people. What we think about when we think about God shapes the way in which we view and treat ourselves. It, it's so important what we think about when we think about God because it shapes who we are becoming. It shapes the life that we're living. It shapes what you do with your shame. It, it shapes what you do with your trauma. It shapes what you do with your doubt. It shapes what you do with your struggle. It shapes everything about you, what you think about when you think about God. And I believe that Jesus came to revolutionize what we think about when we think about God. I believe that Jesus came to heal our misperceptions about the very nature and character of God, to, to, to correct all of our misunderstandings and distortions, to heal your image of God and therefore heal your image of yourself. And one of the most important ways in which Jesus came to revolutionize what you think about when you think about God is captured in one word that was on his lips over and over and over again. And that word is Father. Jesus came to teach us what it means for us to call God Father. What it means for us to be God's children. In the opening verses of the Gospel of John, the Apostle John writes about Jesus as he's beginning his, his story of Jesus. And John says, Yet to all who do receive him, that is Jesus, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so this morning we're going to talk about what it means for us to be. God's children. This is what Paul gets at in these verses that we'll look at this morning in Romans chapter 8. Now, just by way of, of context and review, what we've talked about in the first couple of weeks in Romans chapter 8 
these first four verses that begin with what is true about you. And Paul says, what is true about you is, there, is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why is that true? For the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. How is that true? For what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his son to be a sin offering. And what is it true for? In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. That, that in order for us to actually learn to live up to God's standards and expectations, for us to learn to live holy lives, but not by the power of the flesh and our own strength and our own power and our own ability, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so last week then we talked about this section about the tension between the flesh and the spirit. Two kinds of people, two frames of mind that, that give rise to two forms of life. And at the end of that, we talked about the idea that, that by the Spirit, we put to death the misdeeds of the body, right? that, that be killing sin or it will be killing you. But the only way that we kill sin in our own lives, the, the only way in which we walk the path toward holiness, which is the path to life and peace, is by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And it's right on the heels of that that Paul says this in verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit by the Spirit of God, are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So Paul starts there in verse 14, for those who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. We need to think about carefully, what does it mean for us to be led by the spirit of God? What Paul is saying here is in this conflict between the flesh and the spirit, you know who you belong to by who you follow. You know who you belong to by who you follow. Um, the part of Irving that we live in and here in Las Colinas area, the, the street that runs in front of our neighborhood has a series of ponds on it. And then the, the, uh, the streets cut through between these ponds and there are ducks and geese that live on these ponds. And at a certain time of the year, the ducks all have their ducklings. Right, their little brood following behind them. And sometimes as you're trying to turn on the street to get in the neighborhood, the mama and all her babies are just walking across the street and, and they're usually not in a big hurry. And so you have to wait and watch. And it's so interesting because I see just these different groupings of, of mama ducks and, and all their baby ducklings and they all look exactly alike to me. And I sort of think, how, how is it that the, the, the little ducklings know which one to follow? They all look alike. But the way that you can tell who they belong to is who they're following. And that's what Paul is saying here. Those who are led by the Spirit, those who are following the Spirit, are the children of God. You can tell who you belong to by who you're following. Now, I think it's really important, again, to drill down a little bit more about what does Paul mean when he says here to be led by the Spirit, Sometimes I'll get people who, who will say something to me like, you know, well, I feel like the Spirit is leading me to say this, or I feel like the Spirit is leading me to, to do this. And what, what I really love is when they, they have something that's for me to do, right? 
I feel like the Spirit is leading me to tell you that you need to do this. It's like, huh, I, I got the same Spirit, but he's not leading me quite the same way. And so sometimes I think we actually wind up using this language of being led by the Spirit to sort of give divine sanction to our opinions or preferences. And I think we gotta be really careful about claiming the leadership of the Holy Spirit when it really comes to our opinions or our preferences. I don't think that is exactly what Paul is getting at here. When Paul says to be led by the Spirit, in context, he's talking specifically about walking the path of holiness. He's talking specifically about, in context, killing sin, right? That, that in the verses immediately preceding this, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live for or, or, or because. So the idea continues from last week to this week because those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The idea of being led by the Spirit is directly connected to what he said about killing sin. To be led by the Spirit is to walk the path of holiness. To, by the power of the Spirit, be killing sin in your life. This is what it means for us to be led by the Spirit. It seems to me that part of the evidence that you are a child of God is that you hate your sin. Part of the evidence that you are, that, that I am, a child of God, is that we hate our sin. We said last week, the Spirit comes into our life and teaches us to hate what we used to love and to love what we used to hate. Part of the evidence that you're a child of God is you hate your sin. Now, notice, that doesn't mean that you've eradicated your sin. And I'm not saying that you've conquered it. I am saying that you hate it. So do you hate your sin? And I think a really important question for us to ask is do you hate your own sin more than you hate the sin of others? Because it's really easy for us to get caught up in looking at all the problems out there, right? all the sin out there, to, to think about other people and the way they're living and to hate other people's sin more than we hate our own. May we be led by the Spirit to hate our sin and to be killing it so that it's not killing us. Now, I love what it says here. Those who are led by the Spirit, right? This is not follow my instructions. It's follow me. And there's a big difference, right? My, my mom has this remarkable sense of direction. Right? You, can, you can take her out in the middle of nowhere to a new place she's never been before. You can spin her around multiple times blindfolded and take the blindfold off. And she's just like a compass. She can just find north. And so she just has this internal sense of direction. So when she gives instructions to people on how to get to some place, it's like, well, go north on this road and then you're gonna turn and you're gonna go east from there. And then you'll... And, and, that's great if you got that internal compass, but if you don't, you're in big trouble, right? But it's totally different if she doesn't say, follow my instructions and just says, follow me. I will take you there. I will lead you there. And this is what the Spirit does in our lives. He doesn't just say, all right, you're on your own. Follow my instructions. 
right? Good luck with that. He says, follow me. I will lead you. I will get you there. Now, we are given instruction in the scriptures, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But we also walk in personal relationship and dependence on the presence and power of the Spirit in our lives. And the Spirit says, follow me and I will get you there. Together we walk the path toward holiness. Those who are led by the Spirit are children of God. Now, please note, it's not that by killing sin, by becoming holy, that you then earn the right to become children of God. Nobody earns the right to become children of God at all. Paul is just saying, this is just the way it works. If you're led by the Spirit, you're a child of God. If you're a child of God, you're led by the Spirit. You are hating sin and growing in holiness. Now, I think that this is an appropriate translation to say we are children of God, to make sure that nobody is excluded or or thinks of themselves as excluded. And yet it misses something subtle that's happening in the cultural context because what it literally says is sons of God. If you're led by the Spirit, you're a a son of God. And that could come across like, well, is this only for the guys? And that's not the point at all. In fact, Paul makes that clear by saying all who were led by the Spirit. And the Greek word for all just means all. That's everybody, right? Men and women included. This is for everybody. But he specifically says all are sons. It's in the same way that you think about uh, the metaphor of the bride of Christ and all of us, men and women alike, are included in that metaphor of bride of Christ. Here he's talking about to be sons of God. He doesn't only mean men, but part of what he's highlighting in this context is the secure status and promised inheritance of a son. The secure status and promised inheritance of a son. And his Roman audience in that patriarchal culture would have understood that the secure status and the promised inheritance was given to the sons. Paul's not here endorsing the patriarchy of Roman culture. He's actually subtly subverting it by suggesting that all who were led by the Spirit have the status, the rights, the promises and privileges of of sonship. All who were led by the Spirit are children of God have a position of status, security, and promised inheritance. And then he goes on, verse 15. Look with me there. Verse 15, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. The spirit you received doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Enslaved people lived in fear of retribution if they didn't do the master's will. They had to live in fear and a fear of retribution. If I don't meet my master's expectations, if I, if I don't do my master's will, then I fear retribution. And Paul says, this is not the way it is with God. You're not, you don't become slaves, you're sons. A slave master says, do my will for my benefit, right? You do my will for my benefit. A father says, do my will for your benefit. And when you got little kids, you tell them what to do and what not to do, but it's for their good. A slave master says, you are mine to exploit. A father says, you are mine to protect, to nurture. A slave master says, you are my property. A father says, you are my beloved. Now, here's where we get into some of the tender places. 
Because when we talk about Father, we talk about God as Father, what we hope comes to mind with that image, with that terminology is intimacy, care, safety, security, tender affection. And yet, the words that often actually come to mind because of the fallenness of our earthly fathers are words like distant, angry, absent, passive, and maybe even abusive. I know people who say, if God is anything like my father, I want nothing to do with this. Thank you very much. And this is where I think God wants to heal our image of him. By healing our image of father. You know, a writer named Christopher West once said that if you want to know what is most sacred in the world, just look for what is most violently profaned. And what he's getting at with that idea is that if God really has an enemy in this world that seeks to undermine God's good intention at every turn, he's gonna go after, he's gonna attack the things that are most near and dear to the heart of God. And Christopher West made that observation particularly related to human sexuality. You wanna know what's most sacred in the world, just look at what's most violently profaned. I think the same is true when you talk about issues like race and ethnicity. You wanna know what is most sacred in the world, just look at that which is most violently profaned the way the enemy has gone after to seek to undermine God's good heart for his people. And I think that's so true when it comes to this image of God as father. Because I think there's a sense in which many, if not all of us, carry with us some kind of father wound. And God wants us to know him to trust him, to experience him as father. And he is not just a bigger version of the dad that you had. That he is in fact the perfect expression of everything you desired and longed for your father to be. He is the perfect uh, expression of the desires of our hearts for a father multiplied by infinity. He loves you. He wants you to feel that sense of his love for you, his care for you, his protection of you, your security, your identity as his beloved child. And that's what Paul gets at as he continues on in this, as he uses this, this imagery of adoption to sonship. When Paul uses adoption language, he doesn't pull that from his Jewish background. That, that's not part of his Jewish cultural heritage. He's drawing on a practice that was well-known within Roman culture of the day. That often the practice of adoption actually really had to do, in first century Roman culture, really had to do with securing an heir. And part of what Paul is highlighting in using this image of adoption is the secure status of the child of God. See, what's interesting culturally is that um, in that first century world, a father could disown his biological children for, for any reason that he wanted to. He could just disown them. He could be done. He could cut them off, but not an adopted child. Adoption was permanent. Adoption offered security. 
Adoption said, you are mine and you are secure. You are part of my forever family. Paul says, this is what is available to us who have trusted in Christ, that we are part of the forever family of God. He is our father. We are his children. And look what he says next, verse 16. Actually, in the middle of verse 15. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And I don't have time to go into the technical detail, but my former colleague at Dallas Seminary, Dan Wallace, has done some work on that little phrase, the Spirit testifies with our spirit, and suggests the better translation is actually to our spirit. The, The Spirit is working in our hearts to persuade us that we have a God who loves us, that we have a loving Father in heaven. And by the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. Paul uses here, he's writing in Greek, but he uses here an Aramaic word, Abba. It's the word, a a little child, a word that Jesus himself would have used as a boy for daddy. Abba. It's so interesting that across languages and, and, and various cultures that oftentimes the first word that a child learns to speak is that very basic, simple little way of referring to Papa, Dada, Ba, Daddy. This is a word that implies intimacy and access. The God of the universe says, call me Papa, call me Abba. It's really interesting because in the Old Testament context, um, God had given his people a a, a name to use to to address him. Yahweh, we say it. We don't actually know how it's properly pronounced because people quit saying it centuries ago. Jewish people wouldn't say the divine name that God had given them, the covenant name that God had given them, because they were so desired to reverence God that they wouldn't even say the name that he had given for himself. Instead, they would say Hashem. They would call him Hashem, which means the name. Can you imagine that? He he gives them a name and they say, we're just going to call you the name. I used to tell my students at the seminary, I would say, you know, I'm I'm happy if you want to call me Barry, feel free to call me Barry. I said, I make my kids call me Dr. Jones because I worked hard for that PhD. <laughs> now imagine, though, if I, if I actually made my kids call me Dr. Jones. The formality of that, the sense of power and authority of that. No, the, my, my kids call me dad. Intimacy, access. Paul says, the the spirit works in our hearts so that we cry, Abba, Father. It implies intimacy and access. It implies tender affection. It implies secure love. I love what John says in 1 John 3, verse 1. He says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. Let me hear somebody say, lavished. Lavished, what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Intimacy and access, tender affection, secure love. God desires your presence. And that may be difficult for some of us who didn't feel like our dad wanted our presence. If we felt like we were valued for what we accomplished, 
if we felt like we were welcome once we got it all together. But your Abba wants you just as you are. Your Abba loves you just as you are. Your Abba welcomes you just as you are. His love is greater than your sin. His love is greater than your shame. His love is greater than your wounds. His love is greater than your regrets. His love is greater than your failures. His love is greater than your doubt. His love is greater than your self-contempt. His love is greater than all this battered and broken in your life. And he invites you to cry out, Abba, Father. Intimacy. Access, tender affection, secure love. And then verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Or part of Paul's point in talking about what it means for God to be our father and for us to be his, his children is to offer us this great hope of our glorious inheritance that awaits us. And Paul says, you are co-heirs with Christ. What belongs to him by right is given to us by grace. Everything that he has promised, we receive. This glorious inheritance that awaits us in the future. You see, I think in some ways the problem with the prosperity preachers isn't that they offer too much, it's they offer too much now. We have a great, glorious inheritance that awaits us. All that belongs to Christ by right is given to us by grace, but not yet. You see what Paul says we can expect now. He says, We share in his sufferings. In order that, we may also share in his glory. This world is being rescued. This world is being redeemed. But the time of our glorious inheritance has not arrived. Our time now is marked by pain and struggle. We share in the sufferings of Jesus who entered into this world to take our suffering, to bear our shame, to carry our pain in order to give us a hope beyond it. Suffering now, glory then, and is ours through Christ. And so as we come to the conclusion of our time this morning, I wanna circle back to where we began. The words of John about Jesus John chapter one, verse 12. To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Have you believed? Are you God's child by trusting in Jesus and what he's done on your behalf? Today can be the day that you know, that you know, that you know, that you have a glorious future that awaits you by saying, Abba, I believe. I trust in Jesus to be my savior. I want you to be my father. I want to know that I have intimacy and access, that I have the promise of forgiveness and the hope of eternal life. 
And that can be yours today, merely by trusting in what Jesus has done. Saying, Father, Abba, I believe. And for those of us who are children of God, by faith in Jesus, it's a wonderful opportunity for us just to remind our hearts again, Abba, I belong to you. Abba, I belong to you. I want to experience that intimacy and access. I want to to know your tender affection. I want to feel your secure love. Abba, I belong to you. Will you join me in prayer? I believe the spirit of God is present here in this place in this moment and desires to touch our lives with this truth. And for some here this morning, it is simply to respond by saying, Abba, I believe and receive the gift of life hope. Abba, I believe. You can do that right now in this moment. And I believe that in this moment, there are some of us who just need to to feel the, the healing love of God. Abba, I belong to you. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would move in our hearts that we might all respond as is fitting for us today, to receive from you what it is that you desire for us to receive, to respond to you with what you desire for us to respond with. And so, have your way in this place, in this room, over these next few moments of response, we pray, and we pray it all in the name of our Savior, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new.